I'm just going to jump right in with a few maybe brief thoughts this morning that have struck me as I've been in the passage this week. I think at the very top of the passage, I'm struck a little bit. I hesitate to say the word normalcy when (laughs) Paul is going around breathing out murderous threats against the people of Jesus. But the way that the passage starts, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still. As extreme as his life was, this was Paul's life. This is what he had been doing. And it was in the midst of Paul still breathing out these murderous threats, this powerful, feared man who was ready to suffer and to put other people to death for what he believed was a righteous cause. This was his life. He was fully in the zeal and pursuit of his convictions. And I wondered even what that ride was like to him for him to Damascus. I wondered what was he thinking about as he was traveling to the city. He's just gone to the high priest and gotten letters to go and arrest believers. And what is he ruminating on in this sort of travel that is somewhat normal for him? Was he ruminating on his destination and what he had planned to do when he arrived? Was he talking to God about his righteous cause and getting himself geared up for the requests that he might make to the God that he served, asking God for favor and a decisive hand to do what he had set out to do. I wondered, what was this trip like for him? What did he think about in this sort of normal-type trip for him? He was a man who was convinced of where he was headed. And the passage says, Meanwhile, while Paul was still, on his way, as he neared Damascus on his journey, this light from heaven flashed around him. And I'm struck by the everyday places that this light comes to. It reminds me of the stories when Jesus walked the earth, where he would often encounter people right where they were in the normalcy of their lives. One day while Jesus was on his way, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And Jesus said to him, or it was noon, and a woman came to the well to draw water. And Jesus said to her, or after the crucifixion, when Peter had told the other disciples that he was going to go fishing again, and they said, we'll go with you. And early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore calling out to them. And each unexpected encounter, a light from heaven flooding into their reality, finding them in every kind of normal, everyday place. And now, here with Saul, feared a dangerous force of misplaced righteous fervor, going on with his plans to oppose the people of Jesus, traveling down the road to Damascus, intercepted by a light that he later describes as a light that was brighter than the noonday. In the midst of his day, the daytime of his life, this light intercepts him. And it's a voice calling out to him, revealing, I am the Lord. I am Jesus. There are so many great Christians, maybe all great Christians in history have had a moment like this. Someone like St. Augustine, who was walking in a garden and heard the sing-song voice of a child saying, take up and read, take up and read, and him looking and seeing a book the epistles of Paul on the table and opening it up to Romans 8, 13. 
and having an experience of hearing the Lord that he would describe afterwards as saying all the darkness and the doubt was washed away. Or Martin Luther King, after receiving threats against his life, sitting with his face in his hands over a kitchen table, asking the Lord, is this worth it? As his wife and his children slept in another room and him hearing a voice saying, Martin Luther, stand up for truth. Stand up for justice. Stand up for righteousness. Or Mother Teresa on a train in Calcutta hearing Jesus say, the poor I want you to bring to me. Or Blaise Pascal late in the night for two hours hearing, fire the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, not the God of the philosophers or the savants. Certitude, certitude, joy, peace. Or Sojourner Truth in the quiet of her dreams, seeing visions of Jesus come to her. It can happen anywhere. And maybe we don't count ourselves among the great Christians of the world, but I think most of us have probably experienced this light from heaven, haven't we? I think the first time for me was standing over a sink full of dishes in my childhood home. And I had another experience my freshman year of college in the Kappa dorm at the University of South Florida. I had left home, a pretty confident 18-year-old, <laughs> going to college, ready to be on my own. And I met a group of people as soon as I got on campus and began to spend a lot of time with them. And it took a few weeks for me to realize that there was something maybe a little bit off about this group of people. They seemed like Christians. We would talk about the Bible together. But we would have these odd conversations where they began to try and convince me that everything I'd ever believed in my life was not true. And it took me weeks to realize that I had managed to join a cult my first week on campus. <laughs> not a thing everyone does? No? You guys didn't do that? No. That's what I did. I went to campus really excited and really confident and ready to make friends. And the first group of people that I met, the only people that I knew for the first few months on campus turned out to be a part of this cult on campus. And I would spend so much time with them because my heart was hungry but they just spent so much time like wearing me down and making me question everything I'd really believed in my life. And it was sort of this strange, like manipulative process that I found myself in with them. And it was very confusing. It was very disorienting. And they would do strange things like meet with me and they'd want to study the Bible with me. And one of them would take notes for me while I just listened and, you know, hung out with them. <laughs> they would give me the notes when I was done. <laughs> Or, like, at some point, you know, they, they wanted you to be able to confess your sins, you know, so that you could be forgiven. But part of that confession meant writing a list of your sins that you would give to them to keep. And I was a little stubborn, so I didn't write them down, but I was soft-hearted, so I shared a lot of things that I was coming out of in life and struggling with. And they would later come and use that against me. And those first three months of campus were some of the most confusing months of my life. And I, talk, I tell that story sometimes, and honestly, I jest and I laugh a little about the ridiculousness of sort of what I experienced. But the truth is, as an 18-year-old far from home, it was the most confused and isolated I'd ever felt in my life. 
And I remember starting to feel like, I don't really know if I want to spend time with these people anymore. And I started to hide, and I started to slip away. And I just tried to make friends elsewhere. Like anyone in my dorm that would hang out with me, I would try to spend time with them as long as we weren't going to see those other people, you know, or people in the School of Music. And I remember I would go to college parties in the dorms um, just to be around someone besides them. I didn't really want a party. I was new to college. I didn't care about it. And I remember one night sitting in the hallway of a dorm. The party was going on inside the room, and I was just sitting there in the hallway just trying to make sense of what was happening for me. I hadn't talked to my parents about it. I didn't have any close friends on campus to talk about it. And just sitting there wondering, like, God, have you ever really been real? And is anything that I've ever been sure about in life real? I remember this guy came out of the party and he sat down next to me and he asked me what I was thinking about and I told him and he was like, oh, I know exactly who you're talking about. And I was like, what? You know them? Tell me. And um, he began to tell me who they were and what they were known for on campus. And I never saw that again, guy again after that night. But I remember at that moment feeling like God himself had shown up in that hallway for me. And it brought just enough hope for me to not give up and to want to figure out what was really going on. I remember the next day, at this point, I guess I didn't tell you this part, but at this point, as I started to distance myself from them, they got real weird. They like started calling me, like leaving 30 messages a day on my phone. Back then, it was the answering machine in your dorm, because, you know. <laughs> I'm just saying, it was a while ago. Like, literally, I would come back to, I'm not exaggerating, 30 messages a day. Like, hey, we just want to see you. How are you? What's going on? Where are you? And um, I was like, delete, 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 delete. And my roommate didn't really know what was going on or whatever. And they had started hunting me down on campus because I'd never told them where I lived. And so they had started looking out for me and trying to figure out what dorm I was in. And one day when they called, my roommate picked up the phone and they were like, really sweet. We're Stacy's friend. We want to come see her. And my roommate told them where I lived, like my room and everything. So luckily I wasn't there, but they had come at one point and shown up at my dorm door looking for me. And um, so after I had that moment in that hallway that night at the party, the next day, I went and just shut myself in my dorm room for like six hours and locked the door. I wouldn't even let my roommate in. I was sort of mad at her for telling them where I lived. <laughs> but I was just like, I, God, if you are real, if you have ever been real, I need you to say something to me. And I remember just spending hours sitting and poring over these passages that had just gotten so twisted and, and trying to figure out, like, is he real? Is he not real? Is he real? Is he not real? I remember Jesus coming to me that day through the words of Scripture and pouring out those words, I am the Lord. I am Jesus. I am him. I do want a relationship with you. I want your whole life. And just words of mercy and hope and assurance came to me that day. We probably all had some experience of that light from heaven at some point, maybe more than once, some of us. 
when the light of heaven, it breaks through and it calls us by name and it calls us to himself and it urges us to trust him and to give our whole lives to him. Can you remember when that happened for you? Like right now, can you just take a minute and remember a moment when light from heaven intercepted your life? When Jesus said your name and he called you to himself and he urged you to surrender your whole life to him and his purposes. Where were you? What was happening in your life? What did it feel like? What did it sound like? How did it change you? Some of you just as recently as Jesus' encounter this past month had a moment like this when light intercepted your life. It can happen anywhere in the everyday places that we are. In a world bent on darkness and self-centeredness and destruction and death, God is showing up with light, wanting to captivate our lives and the lives of those that we lead. He calls us out and into his story. It's so personal because he says our name and he asks for our life and our dreams and our future, but it's also about more than that. It's about a story that he is writing, something he is doing in the world. And it's probably hard for us to grasp in those very personal, life-changing moments how our simple listening and responding and obeying that voice when he calls is woven into some bigger thing that he's doing in the world. But that simple listening and responding, obeying, it matters. It's not just the light from heaven that matters. It's the response, too. I mean, he says to Paul, get up and go. In the midst of being rendered blind and being led by the hand by these companions of his who were probably his subordinates, he says to Ananias, go, lay hands on him, tell him. Under life-threatening circumstances, this faithful believer, Ananias, who, I'm, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I think this is the only time that we hear about this Ananias. There are other ones in Scripture. This faithful man is asked to stretch the boundaries of who he believes is far from God or close to God or can be chosen to be used by God in this moment. And what if they had not obeyed? I mean, we do see Ananias resist a little bit like, Jesus, do you know who he is? <laughs> what he's done? Am I really supposed to go to him? And I began to wrestle with those moments that we've had where the light of heaven has come to us. We've heard God call our name, and he's spoken some call into our life. And yet sometimes I think we resist responding. And I wondered, why do we resist? Why do I resist? I don't know why you do sometimes. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're more faithful than me. But I began to wrestle with why I resist. And I think, you know, honestly, I don't want to be weak. And following God in life often means stepping out into something that exposes all of our neediness, our lack, our insufficiency. Life with God always starts with weakness and needing him and knowing that we can't do it without some sort of miraculous intervention from him and help from others. Remembering that moment when light intercepted us is also about learning to stand in weakness. I mean, we see Paul, as he's encountered by the Lord, struck blind 
this powerful, ferocious man, now totally, utterly dependent on others to lead him by the hand to Damascus and to wait there for some guy he's never met to hopefully show up while he sits in the dark <laughs> to lay hands on him and to tell him what the Lord has said. Andy Crouch is a writer who wrote this book called Strong and Weak, and he uses this sort of two-by-two two to talk about the intersection of power and vulnerability in our lives. And he says that as believers, the place where we really flourish is when we have power and vulnerability in equal parts in our life. There's a way that we can have power without vulnerability, and that leads to exploitation, which is where Paul was. There's a way where we can experience real vulnerability and risk in our lives without any agency or power to act on our own behalf, and that is a place of suffering. Paul was all strength, all control, all power. Jesus leaving him blind, him being led by the hand into Mas to Damascus, it was so humbling, so disorienting. Total exposure. He literally could not do what God was asking him to do without help. Flourishing in life with God for Paul meant that he had to be drawn down into weakness, into a place of suffering, maybe even into a place of suffering that was equal to the power that he had exerted over others. And we see this journey in Paul's life. We, Our home church was talking about a later story, version of this story this past Thursday. And, and Brian made the observation that we see this journey towards weakness in Paul's life by the way that he identifies himself. Because early in Paul's journey, he identifies himself as the least of all the apostles. But he calls himself one of the apostles. <laughs> Some would say that maybe he was a replacement for, for Judas. But that's what he calls himself early in his journey with the Lord, as the least of all the apostles. And then later we hear him call himself the least of all the saints. Until later we hear him call himself the chief of all sinners. This was what it meant for him to be intercepted by this light from heaven, to be drawn down into weakness and into the suffering of the cross. And I think for me, I can sometimes resist this light from heaven because I don't want to be weak. For me, especially if that weakness includes feeling incompetent or exposed to the possibility of some real failure. <laughs> I don't like it. I don't want it. And he often leads me into places that I hadn't thought to put my life, a place that I didn't really think I was capable of going, and asking me to go to places that are just beyond what I'm capable of. Every risk he's ever called me to take in response to him, they've all been things that are just beyond me. Being an achiever, I want so badly to be a competent, successful person. But God knows that if I only do the things that I am good and capable of, I will not remember how much I need him. And so much of our life with God begins in the place of weakness and dependence on him. When we surrender our whole life to Jesus and his purposes, he disassembles our self-made sources of safety and security, and he calls us to relinquish our vision of the future, replaces it with a new vision. He can sometimes unearth some of our greatest fears when we really say yes to him. And he exposes us to real pain over and over again as he calls us into life with him, 
a life that is beyond ourselves. Life with God always starts in the place of weakness and needing him, knowing that we can't do it alone without this miraculous intervention and the help of others. I was thinking about how we sort of have these definitive moments of light from heaven. And I forgive me if this isn't really in the passage, but I was just reflecting on Ananias, this, this saint who was further along in his journey than Paul. And I wondered if sometimes God is trying to intercept our lives more often than we realize. I think maybe there are some things that happen in our lives that we don't immediately perceive as the Lord. We don't immediately perceive them as a light from heaven moment. Moments that feel more like, certainly not this, Lord. They feel more like a disruption in our life, an obstacle to where we're headed, something that is a frustrating circumstance that we're trying to make our way through, a challenge to overcome, some threat to the way of life, a faithful way of life that we are wholeheartedly pursuing. Maybe it's some carefully laid plan, some faithful plan in our life that gets turned upside down. Maybe it's some kind of failure, personal or ministry. Maybe there's something not going right in our microchurch and people are leaving or we're not seeing the fruit that we hope for in our neighborhoods or our strategies are not working the way that we thought that they would. Maybe it's relationships that are breaking down in our lives or struggles in our families or betrayal from people that we lead some emotional struggle that pops up in our life that feels crippling at times, and even illness. I think about when, when Jessica was diagnosed with cancer. And couldn't have felt like a light from heaven moment, but I think that she would say God was up to something. None of these really seem like a light from heaven circumstance. And, and how do we know? if these hard things in our life are God or not God. I don't, I don't always know. But I wonder if, if it doesn't matter if God isn't the genesis of the hard thing in our life, but that somehow these difficult, disorienting, painful things in our life might also be a stage that has been set for the light of heaven to break through again in our lives. For us and for those he has sent us to. I think about this Filipino leader who visited us recently. There's this group of amazing Filipino pastors who some of our core leaders were mentored by years ago when they started the underground. And a group of them were here re visiting us recently. And they're amazing. And they're planting churches in the slums of Manila. And they live among the poorest of the poor. And they see the hardest stuff every day. And we were having a conversation with this pastor and sharing some of the struggles that some of our leaders were going through. And he sort of looked us in the eye and he said, you know, just three weeks ago before I came here, I planned to quit. <laughs> He's the new director of this ministry in the Philippines. And he said, it's just hard. People are difficult. There's so little fruit sometimes. And the environment of the ministry life is so harsh with so much sickness and poverty and death among the slums. And he wasn't sure that he could do it. And he just admitted that he was feeling so small and so weak. And he told people he was going to quit. 
He was thinking about going to get a job where he could get paid a decent salary and do something else. He said, but you know, something made me stop and just begin to ask the Lord, what are you doing in my life? What do you want from me right now? And I wonder if maybe we need to get better in all of our circumstances at asking the question, God, what are you doing right now? Even in the moments that don't look like light from heaven moments, where this gracious God is coming and trying to intercept our lives and reorient us to him in some new way. Remembering that light from heaven is connected to getting back to standing in weakness and it causes us to depend on God and to depend on people around us. There's this thing that we're discovering as we walk with microchurch leaders in the underground. For the past 10 years now, we've been able to observe some general patterns in the way that microchurch leaders grow and develop in their missional life with God. And we've noticed that at two very distinct times in the life of every missionary leader, there are these difficult moments that they endure that somehow, somewhere, just on the other side of it, there's breakthrough. God does something. The first one is for the young missionary who is sort of going through these early stages of seeing Jesus as Lord, him calling them out of the status quo and them realizing there's more to this life with God than I thought. Soon after that, he, he often leads leaders like you into a place of encountering pain your own pain, or the pain of the world. And those moments in the life of young leaders are difficult. We we wonder what God is up to, and we're asking him to make sense of that pain in light of his kingdom. And it's difficult. And often what comes right on the other side of that is one of these light from heaven moments where a young leader hears Jesus call their name and say, I want you to go to this group of people or this place and give your life for them. On the other side of the journey, our leaders, like many of you who have said yes to starting something, you've heard a call from God to enter into his mission. And on the other side of that journey, you jump in and you faithfully start to lead your microchurch and try every good strategy that you know and try to serve and lead your people, and it gets really hard. And what we've learned from our microchurch leaders is that at some point, every single microchurch leader is like that Filipino pastor They say, this is too hard, I want to quit. (laughs) I don't know what I'm doing. I thought I knew what I was doing, but I don't know what I'm doing. And nothing is happening here, and I'm not sure people are going to come to know Jesus here, and I don't want to do this anymore. And it's this wall that every leader hits. And often if a leader can find a way to persevere through that moment, just on the other side of it is some sort of breakthrough where the Lord Maybe like that conversation with Ananias comes and says something to them that they'd never thought of or never considered and sends them in a new direction to live into this calling he's given them. But often, in both contexts, whether it's that first part of the missionary journey or the second part, there is a person involved. Someone who comes along in your life and says, Yes, I think the Lord is calling you to that. They affirm that call that you hear from the Lord. Or on the other side of the journey, they come alongside you and they tell you not to quit. They remind you that God has called you. 
and that you do belong here, and this is important, and it does matter, and it's hard for me too, but don't give up. We need those relationships when we enter into these places of weakness with the Lord. So I guess I I wanted this to be encouraging to you today, but honestly, it's just like God leads us into weakness, and <laughs> that is what it is. And I guess I just want to say to you, leaders and missionaries, that if you feel weak or like this thing God has called you to is hard or like you're not sure you can keep going, you're in good company here. Every missionary in our community feels that way at some point. And if that's not you today, you're like, I don't know what you're talking about, bless you. (laughs) Maybe you've been there and God's brought you through it. But if you haven't and you follow Jesus long enough, hopefully you'll remember this. Even for me now, I, I have been in a season of weakness, and I think many of our leaders have experienced some sort of pervasive weakness over the past few years. It can feel confusing and disorienting and painful at times, and honestly, it isn't even so much about the external circumstances, but it's about what is happening inside as we reckon with our inability to do the things that God has called us to do and to be the people that God has called us to be. It's left me feeling very weak at moments and having to say to God over and over and to people in my life, I don't know what this means. I can't do this on my own. I need you. This moving back and forth between weakness and dependence on God and his people and mission where we face the giant evils of the world, these two things are very connected, and they're like a dance we do in our missionary life. I'm going to wrap up soon, so if there's someone that wants to come up on the worship team. This, This dance between weakness and being sent to enter into God's work in the world These things are connected. There was this researcher 50 years ago named Harry Harlow who was doing work on the human need for love and the effects of love in a person's life. And they dreamt up this experiment that I'm sad to say I watched, and I don't condone it, but it's interesting. They dreamed up this experiment with with small monkeys where they wanted to try and find out you know, if these tiny, cute creatures were somehow impacted by a need for love or something like it and the effect of love in their life. And so they created two different sort of fake moms for these little monkeys. One of them was um, wire monkey mom, we'll call her. And she was made out of wire and she was made to hold food for the monkey that it could get what it needed every day for its sustenance. And they made another fake mom for the monkeys and it was terry cloth monkey. It was soft and cozy and he couldn't get any food from it, but it was really comfy to be near. And they just put these two fake moms that sort of represent these two needs in the life of a person, or in this case, a monkey. And they sent some monkeys in and began to observe them. And the monkeys would go to Wire Monkey Mom when they were hungry and they needed something. But the truth is they would spend up to 17 hours a day sitting with Terry Cloth Monkey Mom. 
with their arms wrapped around it, sitting near it in its comfort. And they wondered, what would happen if we introduced something very scary into the, it wasn't a crate, it was like a walled-in room with the monkeys and their fake moms. So they built this robot that was frightening. It was like this square metal robot with eyes that would flash and it had a head and arms that would do this and it made this really terrible loud screeching metal noise. And so one day, the little monkeys are peacefully playing near their two fake moms and they open up a door and they send in this scary metal monster. And it's just like, just eyes blinking, going crazy. And I watched the video and this poor little monkey went bananas. It lost its mind. It was just like, and it turned away and just began to run, run immediately away. And as they observed it, they realized it wasn't just running away from this monster. It was running toward. It was running toward Terry Cloth, Monkey Mom. This sort of faux representation of love. It jumped up and wrapped its arms around her. And it was amazing to watch. It would just, it was like it was telling her what was happening, just sort of freaking out in her face, you know, just ree, ree, ree. And that went on for a minute. And then you saw as he sat there in its arms, he just began to calm down and quiet himself. Until soon, still wrapped in the arms of Terry Cloth Monkey Mom, he could look back at the monster. And then I watched for a few minutes and something extraordinary happened. He climbed down out of her arms. He didn't go too far, he stood very close. But he climbed down and he turned and he began to threaten the monster. Just hands up, squawking at it, going crazy. When we say yes to the call of God on our whole life, we often find ourselves in places that leave us feeling weak and afraid. And that weakness is meant to drive us back into the arms of the one who has loved us and called us, who has sent light from heaven to intercept our lives. It's meant to drive us back into his presence, into the presence of his people. And it's out of that place, still small, even weak still, but encouraged, given courage that we are sent back out to face the evils of this world because the Lord is standing right there with us. And it is this dance that we do where we try to step out in bold and risky ways as weak people into this call that Jesus has given us. And, and it's, we come up short a lot of times. We see victory. God uses us. He does. You guys know that. But it's hard. And sometimes it gets to be too much for us. And, and what it's supposed to do is to drive us back into his presence. And whenever we're weak, if it drives us back into his presence, then good. 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 
I just want to share this last observation with you that a friend made this week about the passage. It's this moment that you guys talked about when the Lord says to Ananias, I will show Saul how much he must suffer for my sake. We know that Jesus does not make a low call. He wants the whole of Paul's life. And so he asks for it. The first 12 disciples, Paul, the rest of us, we are asked for the same thing, for everything, even suffering and death. And Paul is willing to suffer. And this friend made the observation that maybe Paul even needs this word from Jesus to know that it's worth giving his life to. Paul was already willing to suffer for what he believed in. And maybe Jesus says it to Ananias to encourage Ananias, but maybe he doesn't show this to Saul to scare him or to punish him, but to show him how important it is to inspire him so that he can know how much it will matter if he will surrender his whole life to the lordship of this Jesus that he has been persecuting. Any suffering in our life without meaning will wreck the human heart. But whatever you are facing because of this light from heaven, it is worth it. It is worth your whole life to love your neighborhood, to love broken and vulnerable women, to serve and love addicts, to care for kids in the foster system, to care for young mothers who have no one, to enter into the struggle of the sick. It matters and it's worth it to forgive again, to serve again, to lay your life down again. It matters in him. As Lucas comes this morning to lead us into communion, I wonder how connected are you to that moment when light from heaven intercepted your life? Is there some place of weakness that God is calling you to stand in that you've been resisting? Will you surrender that to him this morning? Or maybe right now you're, you're being called to be an Ananias for someone. You're, maybe as you pray before you come and take communion this morning, there's someone the Lord wants to put on your heart who's weak right now, who's wanting to give up on the thing that Jesus has called them to. And maybe he's going to say their name to you and ask you to reach out to them today, to encourage them, and to pray for them. I guess this morning, Lucas might have a word for us, but as we come to communion, I just wonder, will you, will you just sit again and remember this Jesus who has loved you and called you? And, and once again, just in the quiet of your own space with him, surrender your whole life to him.